Our guest today is Arielle Feldman Hall. She is the Alfred Manning Associate Professor of Cognitive, Linguistics, and Psychological Sciences at Brown University. Her research focuses on studying the neural basis of moral decision-making, altruism, and socio-emotional decision-making. Specifically, she uses techniques from different fields like behavioral economics, social psychology, imaging, and psychophysiology to disentangle the cognitive and neural processes behind the complex choices that shape human social behavior. Let's start with a simple question. So what is morality? <laughs> that is not a simple question. <laughs> um, are you asking because you want a definition from someone who studies morality or do you want to know what I personally think morality is? <laughs> um, both. Is, is, there, is there a difference? Um, yeah, I guess I would say that in, um, in my work as a scientist, I try not to actually think about what exactly quote unquote morality is because I'm not in this game to make prescriptive calls about how people should or should not behave. Um, I'm more of a dispassionate observer who's trying to understand the mechanisms that drive people to do certain things in the moral sphere. And because of that, I don't see that, you know, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of different uh, definitions out there about what morality is, but what constitutes a moral decision. Um, from either a philosophical side or even from a scientific psychological side. Um, and I'm, I can give you a, de a definition I think that is somewhat helpful, but I, in general, try not to be too um, strict about adhering to these ideas of what, let's say, morality is simply because I think it ultimately doesn't um, behoove the endeavor of trying to understand mechanistically how people make decisions in certain social contexts. Um, so, but with, with having said that, um, I think that um, morals, moral dilemmas usually constitute um, a trade-off or a tension between some sort of self-benefit and then harm to another. And so if we're making a decision for ourselves, usually that self-benefit is for ourselves and the harm to another is somebody else. But there can also be um, situations in which people are making decisions um, for other people or about other groups where one's you know, own self-benefit or harm is not directly involved in the dilemma. Why, why do you think humans have it? Do you think there's some evolutionary adaptation to having morality? Um, uh, I think that humans have it because I think that moral phenomena act as a form of social glue and social contract that make working with other individuals and collaborating with other people outside of, let's say your family or next of kin, easier. So 
of course there's social norms like you know you could put your napkin on your lap and um you know do all these other things that dictate how we move about um our societies and our communities but those don't have the gravitas that you know moral phenomenon have and so to have these moral contracts that are that are understood but not often spoken of goes a long way in dictating the terms of how people engage with one another and what's um, deemed to be okay and not okay. So I think from a societal perspective, from living in a community and collaborating with other people, you know, morality is very important. How plastic um, do you think is morality? Like, is, are we... Is it intrinsic in humans? Are we born with a sense of what is right and wrong or is what exactly is right and wrong is completely determined by uh, our upbringing? Yeah, I'm not a nativist. I don't believe that people are born with a strict moral code that they adhere to. I'm, I know, you know, Kylie Hamlin has and others have work that show, um, you know, that, you know, six month olds and nine month olds are born with um, a sense of right and wrong. So they're like attracted or repel, attracted to like moral agents and repelled by immoral agents. Um, evidence of that, I wouldn't say means that people have a moral calculus at birth. Um, but I think a lot of the idea behind quote unquote morality and what governs the types of moral choices that we make comes from being culturally ingrained, um, th you know, throughout development and throughout life. Um, and, of, you know, but of course there is some pull between nature and nurture, um, like all scenarios. Hmm, okay. So I wonder if, let's say you're brought up in a society where what is morally right goes against uh, genetically or evolutionarily, what is the optimal way of surviving? what would happen so to take to take it to the extreme if in some alien society you were brought up thinking that uh murdering people was the morally right thing to do would the cultural upbringing completely dominate something that is not evolutionarily mm -hmm. optimal would the agent feel conflicted at all <laughs> um would the agent feel conflicted um i think yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's, I suppose, an empirical question. But I would make the argument that murdering people is not beneficial to society. So if everybody has to be careful about watching their back and who they are and not in a collaborative or um, able to coexist with other people, then that becomes a state of um, heightened stress and vulnerability and violence. And that makes... Um, actually living in society quite difficult. So, um, you know, there's a lot of like economic games that have looked at um, these types of decisions where you, where you pit like, let's say free riding, which is like taking advantage of like other individuals. So this isn't, let's say murder, but it's exploiting other people for monetary gain. Um, and what you find is that yes, in the short term, if you do you know, have this exploitative behavior where you free ride, where other people are continuing to to give and to collaborate um, and cooperate with others in their community, 
um, you can make more money. But the truth is, is that long-term gains of being a free rider don't bear out, right? So people stop wanting to cooperate with you, which puts you in a situation where you it's very hard to make any money and any windfalls. Um, and, um, and actually, if you're playing the long-term strategic game, it's more beneficial usually. I mean, of course, it depends a little bit on what the the um, boundary conditions or the rules of the game are, but usually cooperators stand to make, you know, more monetary earnings um, than people who are free riding, even though the free riders will make more in the immediate. Mm. So what society deems is morally right and wrong is not completely arbitrary. There's um, some thoughts about how the, the consequences go. Um, so, how much do we actually understand about the neurobiology of moral decision-making? Um, well, I think that we understand a little bit. I mean, um, we have a good idea of, <clears throat> let's say what brain, brain regions are involved in making moral decisions. So when you refer to, when you say neurobiology, I assume you mean like what the brain is doing. Yeah. Um, so, we have a pretty good idea, a good sketch, a broad sketch of which brain regions are involved in the, you know, studying morality, you know, in the scanner um, has been around for just over 20 years. So two decades. And those regions that are involved in making these moral decisions are consistently um, being engaged and activated across the last two decades, which is very promising and hopeful. Um, but as methods become more sophisticated and we can ask different types of questions, so not just, let's say, where in the brain something might be happening, but also what is the content or <clears throat> the representation that the brain is doing when it's making a certain type of choice, the types of questions that we can ask become different. Um, and I would say more interesting than just a question of where. Um, so. To give you an example, like a classic region and sort of the, I would call like the quote unquote moral network, moral uh, neural network is like meal prefrontal cortex. And that's wonderful to say like, you know, after two decades, okay, so we have regions of the um, medial prefrontal cortex that come online and we make moral decisions. But if I was to say, well, what exactly is this brain region doing when it's executing a decision about, you know, self-benefit against um, trade-off, traded off against harm to another, um, that becomes a harder, a harder thing to answer. And so some of the methods that are being used now um, are very helpful in that, in, in that domain because we can make, we can answer that question in a more representational way. Well, the medial prefrontal prefrontal cortex is representing X or Y. And that gives us a little bit more insight and a little bit more leverage to say, well, this particular part of the brain is achieving this or is mechanistically representing this part of the moral equation when it's making um, a choice. Hmm. So you mentioned that it's harder to talk about what are the underlying algorithms um, that are being processed in the in these brain regions. So how much work has really gone into this and how much how much do we understand about the underlying algorithms? And is this very is this like other algorithms similar to 
other forms of decision making, like perceptual decision making, or is there something fundamentally different? Okay. Yeah. So I think you're asking two questions here. <clears throat> and the second question is, um, is there something special about morality or social social choices that are different from other types of cognitive processes? So let let's answer that in a in a second. But the first question was, um, what do we really know about what you're calling the algorithms? So <clears throat> again, like it's hard for um, the methods that we're using to answer the question of, at the algorithmic level about what's happening when we're making a moral decision. What's very useful in that, um, um, for that, to answer that question is more to use computational models and basically build a suite of um, different models that say you might be you know executing a choice um, using this type of strategy or this type of algorithm versus a different type of strategy or algorithm and then compare those different models to one another and say okay well actually the evidence or the data that we have in hand the real empirical data matches model a but not model b and so that gives us footing in a more um, algorithmic way to say what exactly are the computations that are being executed when you make a when you make a decision. The amount of work that's happening in that space, I would say, is about five to seven years old. Like there's not a long history of people using computational models to dig up and investigate what's happening um, in the moral domain. Um, partly, I think, because it's so complicated. So one thing where, where computational models um, really thrive is in simplicity, in simple situations. So like in classic cognitive neuroscience, um, the, um, the paradigm, the traditional paradigm is called, you know, like a one or a two-armed bandit. And what does that mean? That means when you're making decisions about gambling, um, money, um, and a, in abandoned is a, um, essentially a slot machine or like a gambling machine that you might encounter in, um, a casino or something like that. So, um, people are trying to, um, parameterize this very limited bounded space of, okay, you have some probability associated with this, um, one-armed bandit. Um, and your job is to figure out what its reward rate is or to make better decisions about how to gamble over time. It's a really bounded scenario. It's a simple one, right? There's not a lot of factors um, that are coming into play. And if you were to translate that or pick that exact scenario up and place it into the moral domain, a lot of the assumptions that happen in these simple one-armed bandit tasks do not um, exist in the social moral world where the complexity of a social situation of a moral situation is far more difficult. So for example, when I'm deciding whether to gamble with a slot machine, I don't need to think about what the slot machine's thinking and about how my action to gamble or to not gamble, or maybe even to gamble $1 versus you know $5 versus $10 is not, um, does not depend on what the other person thinks about what I'm doing, how they might respond, um, or any of sort of the potential uh, decision trees that can stem from a set of actions that I might make. So the actions 
are frankly, you know, unlimited, as are the inferences about what someone thinks that you're doing. And so because of the difficulty with gaining traction in the moral and the social domain, computational models, I think, have not been as readily used in um, in this in these types of contexts. Now that's changing and people are trying to find traction um, and to you know make interesting claims about what's happening from a learning and decision-making point of view in the moral and social domain. Um, but I would say that that is um, it's slow going work and, and and it's still very much a work in progress. So the, the complexity of this problem, do you think uh, com computational models will get there one day or will we need other methods of interrogating this? Um, yeah, that's a, it's a good question. Um, I guess it depends what you mean by get there. <laughs> So um, uh, whatever the benchmark of success, I think um, depends, it depends a bit. I mean, I think we can certainly make our models more sophisticated. I think we can make our paradigms more sophisticated. I don't think they, and those two things go hand in hand. You can't have a complicated model and a very simple paradigm or vice versa. Um, and so part of this, um, process is ushering along sort of a new era of paradigms that ramp up in complexity and reality that allow the models to operate in a more high dimensional complex domain. Um, I think that we can achieve a lot more by doing those two things. And we can make claims about human behavior that are much more likely to be akin to what happens in the real world if we do those things, um, is that gonna be sufficient to model the full complexities of what we encounter in the real world? Um, I don't know. I think that's, I think I, I would be hard pressed to say that we could ever develop a model and a paradigm that would truly map on to all the complexities and high dimensional spaces that happen in, in for moral phenomenon. Um, so to, to answer your second question, um, is there something special about the moral or social space? Um, I, yeah, I think that there, I don't think that the exact same processes that are used um, to study, let's say, perception or very simple decision-making tasks in the non-social domain are co-opted in very simplistic terms the exact same way as they would be in the social domain. Um, that doesn't mean that there isn't um, reason to use part of that same system or to um, um, borrow some mechanism in part uh, to be used in the social domain, but as a, as a simple like one-to-one -one mapping, I don't think that that's likely to be the case. Um, I think that there is something, there are cases, quote unquote, special cases of things that happen in the social domain that go, that change what the dynamic or the mechanism is um, for, um, for, for how people process those types of decisions.
Um, so you mentioned putting people in the scanner as they're doing moral decision making, and that helps us uh, find which brain regions are activated when people are making moral decisions. Uh, but there's a limitation there, which is we don't know what are the underlying computations within the brain region that is being made uh, and computational models. But there's also limitations because uh, it's hard to to represent the, the complexity of the problem of moral decision making with a computational model. So as neuroscientists, as a neuroscientist studying um, moral decision making, uh, what sort of techniques do you use and how, how do you study this experimentally? Yeah. Um, so, you know, one thing that we've traditionally relied a lot upon are is something that I mentioned briefly before, which is economic games. And essentially what economic games allows us to do is um, to play for real stakes, right? So you can, you know, incentivize people to make money or to lose money. And that puts a real quote unquote price on what people are willing to do and allows us to quantify actions with some sort of metric. Um, however, economic games themselves are often like very simplistic versions of uh, what happens in the real world. They're also very bounded. And so what we try to do is take um, some of the flavors or um, you know frameworks where these economic games operate and then amplify them so that they're that the dynamics of the game, are more either continuous or changing or high dimensional in a way that they're not traditionally used um, in the economics literature and uh, within those frameworks. Um, the other thing that we try to do is we try to build models that are not, let's just say a simple RL, simple reinforcement learning model. Um, and we try to think about the types of strategies or decisions um, in ways that people learn that's, that go beyond just this traditional RL framework, um, since it's unlikely that everything can be slotted into, you know, a very sort of simplistic mechanism, like, or sorry, simplistic, like, uh, learning model, like an RL model. So I think the, the goal for us and what we do is find ways to scale up both paradigm and model hand in hand to capture some of the complexities of the real world while also holding um, some things constant and allowing for a level of precision that, that can get us um, insight into human behavior. Mm. So these are like psychology experiments with real humans. So could you talk more about uh, what are these economic games like? So, you know, one very famous economic game is called the ultimatum game. So the way that the ultimatum game works, there's two players, there's a proposer and a responder. So let's say that I'm the proposer and that you're the responder. Um, I would be endowed with a sum of money, let's say $10, and I can split the money with you however I would like. So I can split it by five. I can keep, you know, $9.99 for myself and give a cent to you so on and so forth. But the rules of the game are such that however I split that money, once a split is made, you get to make the decision whether to accept the offer, in which case both of us get the money as I proposed. So if I split the money five, five and you accept it, we both walk away with $5.
but you can also reject the offer. And if you reject the offer, neither of us gets any money. So if I give you only a cent out of $10, it might be more worth it to you to reject that offer and send a social signal that that's unacceptable behavior and that you're not, you don't want that scent and you're willing to forego that money, even though some money is better than no money um, in order to punish me from be for behaving in a, you know, socially um, um, inappropriate way. And the data shows that people who get offers that are less than 20% of the pie. So in a case of $10, if I offer $2 or less, um, the people on the other side, the responders are likely to reject that offer um, and nobody comes out with any money. So that would be an example of like a classic um, economic game. So how, how do you ensure that you know, the decisions that participants, participants make during an experiment are the same as what they would do in real life? Because maybe they're going into a psychology experiment and they're thinking this is just for fun anyway. Like, I don't really care. So Sorry. how do you make yeah. sure that they're actually treating this seriously? Right. I mean, that's always, it's always a question on the minds of psychologists. It's something that people are always thinking about. Um, we don't know the answer writ large. I mean, with, with economic games, like, so for example, the ultimatum game, um, when they've run these versions of the ultimatum game out in the wild, where let's say they'll go to other countries and the stakes they can make much higher. So it's not just $10, but they can make it, you know, let's say up to three months salary. People often respond in the same way. And so the data in the lab with small stakes, $10 or the data even on MTurk or Prolific, which is like these online um, uh, platforms where you can run, you know, thousands of subjects in in afternoon, basically. And in those cases, the stakes for these online platforms can even be like out of a dollar. So they're even smaller. In all of these cases, whether it's a dollar online, it's $10 in the lab, or it's three months salary um, out in the wilds in a field study, the data reflects is pretty much the same. They mirror each other. So that's really good evidence, at least in this case with the ultimatum game, um, that what we're seeing in the lab translates to the real world. But you're bringing up a totally fair question, which is how do you know that people are taking it seriously? And the truth is, is you don't. And especially if the if the paradigm of the questions that you're asking are hypothetical. So like, you know, one of the most, um, I would say of the past 20 years, famous um, <clears throat> experiments um, is comes from philosophy, which is like the trolley dilemma you know what the trolley dilemma is, right? So I think pretty much everybody knows what the trolley dilemma is um, at this point. But for, for those who don't know, a trolley is like hurtling down a set of tracks and um, it's about to hit, uh, you know, five workers and you can reroute the trolley so that it only hits one person. Do you flip the switch so that you reroute the trolley so that it only hits one person? So this is a hypothetical question, right? Like this is not something that's going to happen in the real world. It's not something in which the consequences are going to be borne out and so on and so forth. And so the question is, is like, well, what would happen if you were really faced with that decision in real life? Would you, would you flip the switch if that's what you just said you would do in this hypothetical? And the answer um, for the most part is, you know, we don't really know because we can't run that study. Um, you know, some of my early work in my PhD looked at the differences between what we would say hypothetically and then what we would do in reality. It was a different paradigm. It wasn't using the trolley paradigm, um, but it had to do with um, 
self-benefit uh, monetarily versus harm to another. So in this particular case, in this set of studies, we incentivized people to keep um, money. So like um, up to, let's say 300 pounds sterling, uh, which is the or sorry, 200 pounds sterling, which is depending on the, the world is equivalent to $300. Um, and what they had to do to keep that money is apply electric shocks to another person. And if you ask people, okay, here's the scenario and you describe the whole thing, what would you do? Everybody says, almost everybody says, I would never do that. I'm not going to keep money and apply electroshocks to somebody else. And then we, we brought in a whole host of people, brought in 150 people into the lab. And we said, okay, here's here's the money, make a decision. And then 149 of those people kept some part of that money um, and uh, applied electroshocks to somebody else. So there is this huge delta. There's this difference between what people say that they will do hypothetically and ultimately what they um, actually do in, in the real world. And that's a big problem in psychology studies, especially in the moral domain, where it's really hard to get test beds that are meaningful in the lab that reflect what happens moralistically out in the world. Do you think things like virtual reality could help like with ex psychology experiments, helping people get more immersed in the experience? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, and, you know, we have these experiments were run before there was like any sort of VR world, but, um, or VR was readily accessible, but what, you know, some of the things that we showed in, in some of the early PH, some of my early PhD work was that the less you have to simulate. So the less, um, work a subject has to do to figure out what the tensions are, if those, those are provided for, which happens in a VR space, um, the more likely they are to make the decisions that map onto reality. So I think working in virtual realities is, is extremely helpful because you can simulate harm, you can simulate um, self-gain or self-benefit in a way you can't, that can be very difficult to do in the lab. And you can approximate the decisions that people will make presumably much more closely to reality by using these types of frameworks. So, so back to the economic game. So um, the data that you analyze, are, are you recording from the brains of people or is it just purely based on behavior? Um, in the one that I was just studying, I was just talking about, we've done both. Right, okay. Yeah. And uh, so you mentioned also like computational models that uh, are more sophisticated than just reinforcement learning. So what do these models look like? Like how, how would you build a computational model like that? Yeah, well, <laughs> so that's, um, there's so many different ways. That's saying like, what, what kind of ice cream would you order? And then there's like 32 flavors. <laughs> so, I mean, you can, you can build a model um, that, um, to, to any specification, right? You can you can build your perfect ice cream cone or your perfect car um, or what you think is is perfect. Um, I think that the the general principles that we try to use when we're building these models are what are the likely strategies that are more likely than not to be present when people are making the types of decisions that we're looking at. And so to do that, you have to hark back to 
classic psychology research to the work that has been done already in social psychology that makes um, hypotheses about the types of um, um, mechanisms and strategies that people use and then mathematically express what those would be using a model. And I find that that's the best way of going about and building models is not sort of just picking any old model off the shelf and just applying it um, willy-nilly, but thoughtfully thinking through what the data already tells us and then building out the models to test the assumptions from those pre-existing theories. Um, and ideally you do it in a world where you can, you know, pit multiple theories against one another and then see which one wins out. When you're studying moral decision-making, what does it mean for you to understand the cognitive and neural mechanism of human social behavior? So what level of explanation are you looking for in your work? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So for me, I think the thing that guides most of my work is understanding on a mechanistic level to, and when I say mechanistic level is explaining, um, you know, why and how a behavior occurs. And critically that those mechanisms are robust. So to context, meaning that it's, um, not that, you know, we need, you know, 45 different, you know, mechanisms, each when you change the context just a little bit, and then a different type of mechanism operates, but rather, can we find a parsimonious explanation mechanistically for why a behavior operates like this in one case, but might change in another case, but still there's, you know, one explanation for why that's happening. So that's the level of explanation that I seek when we're running experiments and we're thinking about, you know, why humans do the things that they do. So I also wanted to ask you about artificial intelligence. As AI is becoming more sophisticated, uh, we want AI systems to you know, respect the welfare of humans and to make ethical decisions. Do you think morality is something that can be engineered? Yeah, I mean, I would say aren't self-driving cars doing that right now? So the algorithms that go into computing whether um, and it, in what context to stop for a pedestrian or something in the in the middle of the road versus prioritize the uh, collision of a car and jeopardize the well-being of the people in the car um, operate exactly under those terms, right? So like I think the whole self-driving car issue is a question of how do you build moral algorithms that people are okay with. So one of the interesting things about that space is that, you know, people say, well, the car should look like X, Y, Z and should have these moral principles and should crash itself rather than, let's say, you know, hit a pedestrian. But then that person won't buy the car, right? Because if they know that it's going to, um, uh, prioritize crashing the car into like the the tree or the side of the road versus the pedestrian. Are you willing to make that the case when you're the person behind the wheel? Um, and it brings into focus like a very interesting dynamic about building um, agents um, and building AI that reflect the principles of an idealized moral self versus the willingness of what 
we will do and put ourselves into certain situations. And it's not always uh, one-to-one. So some um, more personal questions. How, how did you get interested in science and in particular your research area? Um, I was, um, let's see, I was working, um, I was like 20, I think I was 23 and I was working in DC, in Washington, DC, um, in politics. I was working for, um, Senator John Kerry at the time. And I realized that I really wanted to go back to school, but I didn't know, um, what I, what exactly I wanted to do. And I was trying to figure out if I should go to medical school or go get a PhD. Um, and I think that <laughs> the applications for PhDs were sooner. This is, this is a very unprincipled and sort of ad hoc way of going about doing things in one's life. But the, the um, applications for PhD were before medical school. And so I just applied and um, um, I, I also wanted to go abroad. So I was applying to like Cambridge and Oxford. And when you apply to Oxbridge, they ask you to write a proposal for what you wanna study. And so I remember um, spending a weekend, you know, just reading all of these journal articles um, and thinking about all the things that interested me in the articles that I was reading and pulling out themes um, from the things that were interesting to me and basically creating a proposal around um, the themes that I found interesting and, and morality, um, moral decisions happen to be one of those themes. Um, and it, you know, I ended up doing exactly, you know, more or less what I proposed in my um, application for about the next, let's say seven, six to seven years, like including my my PhD at Cambridge was three and a half years. Um, but I continued to do that work during my postdoc as well. And um, it was very sort of, you know, lucky. And I would say that it was not a thought out, well-planned um, scenario for going to grad school. It just sort of happened to work and it, it worked well for um, for what I was doing at the time. That's crazy. Were you, you said you were working in politics. Were you studying science prior to that or nothing related to science at all? I had um, had a dual degree in, so I started off college being an English literature and history major. And um, my university makes you take like um, core classes in different disciplines so that you have a broad education. So I had to take a lab course and I took um, intro to neuroscience because I didn't want to take like intro to bio or intro to chemistry. And I loved that course and started to take lots of different courses in that field and then loved it so much that I switched out my history major for neuroscience. Um, and so I graduated with a dual degree in um, English literature and neuroscience. Um, so I had that experience in college but I didn't have the two years of, you know, like I think now getting into grad schools, I would never have gone into grad school now. When you, like when people apply to my lab, they have like two years of um, um, working in a lab full time after college. Um, some people have, many people have, you know, publications that are already either published or they're preprints. 
like I didn't have any of, uh, of that kind of chops to my name at the time. I it was much more, um, whimsical than that. <laughs> um, what is your favorite part about doing science? Um, my favorite part about doing science is, is twofold. It's getting to think about questions that never are boring to me. So like things that motivate human beings to do kind of the crazy things that they do and thinking about why that might be. And the second thing is getting it to do, getting to do that with people who are really smart and thoughtful and interesting. And so, you know, my days are filled with having interesting conversations, whether they're about, you know, brainstorming why something's happening and can we figure out an answer to this question to trying to put a paradigm together to looking at the data and figuring out what the data says. There's always, you know, challenges and, um, and, you know, interesting forking paths to looking at all the different angles of our research questions. And to me, that just makes it like an endlessly interesting and fun experience. One final question. What advice do you have for young scientists? Um, what advice do I have for young scientists? Um, I guess my advice would be to follow the things that the questions and the disciplines that really then the questions that like keep you up at night. So the things that are really interesting to you, um, I think it's, it's um, that's the thing that keeps us, you know, in science, even though it can be hard with long horizons and lots of rejections and all sorts of things. Like if you just do what you love to do and you love to ask these questions about things that, you know, are important to you, then you're not going to get bored. Um, and I think particularly for the young scientists, you want to find an environment and a mentor that's supportive. Um, and so do your homework about what labs you apply to and where you go, because like there's all sorts of uh, different um, vibes and flavors to mentoring. And I happen to be really lucky. I didn't know any of this going in. I think I completely like, you know, drew very lucky hands in both my um, PhD and postdoc, but my mentors um, are very much the reason that I'm, you know, still in science today and staying the course, even though sometimes, you know, it got hard and um, emotionally difficult. If you have people who support you, then that makes the world a difference. Ariel, this was super interesting. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me.